Let me pray as we start. Oh, Lord, we are just so thankful that you are our redeemer. You love us. You guide us. You care for us. There is just none like you. You are so mighty to save. You are faithful. You have paid our debt, and you have bought us back with a great price, your life. So we love you, and we want to see you more clearly, and we want to love you more dearly by this study in Exodus. So would you come, and would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for coming. I am just so thrilled that you are here and welcome to Women's Bible Study. I know for some of you, this is the first time you've done a Women's Bible Study at Bethlehem, and so a special welcome to you, and we just want you to feel connected and loved and just that you are welcomed by your sisters in Christ. So uh, our, some of you were here for our women's kickoff that we had a week ago on Thursday night, and we introduced our theme, which is the name of this Bible study, Our Redeemer, Mighty to Save. And so I just, for those of you that weren't here, I unpacked it a little bit word by word, but we're gonna do that in our study of Exodus. So you're gonna learn, you're gonna see God as Yahweh, our Redeemer. We are going to get started here uh, in our introduction to Exodus. So uh, some of these stories uh, are, for you might be familiar. Uh, perhaps some of you learned them in Sunday school using something non-technological like a flannel graph? How many of you remember flannel graphs? Oh, yes. And I know they still use them in the children's department. Yes, Tina does. <laughs> so you... So you can see Moses actually going along the flannel board and part, yeah, that's great. Well, some of you might have also watched um, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments uh, at Easter. And when I looked that up, I found out that that has run in prime time TV on networks since 1973. Isn't that amazing? And so probably all of you have at least maybe looked Seen part of it once or twice? Okay, so you've got images in your mind of how Exodus happened, right? Okay, so we're going to try to set those aside. <laughs> some of them are really good. Actually, some of the, um, the, the, the guy who originally made the movie, um, Cecil, yeah, yeah, DeMille, he did a lot of study of Exodus. And uh, we're going to see, when we do our movie nights, we're going to see some clips of that because he actually believed in a, a giant, miraculous Red Sea deliverance where mod some modern scholars think, ah, it was just kind of through a swampy area. It wasn't really a big miracle. Okay, so, uh, so some of those movies can give us these, you know, idea of how big it actually was. But Exodus is not just a story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. It is an epic story of that. But the human side of the story is important. We can learn a lot from that, but, it, but it's more than that. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, now these things took place as an example for us, for our instruction. So we don't want to minimize what we can learn about us in applying Exodus, but Exodus is about the Lord, Yahweh. It's about seeing him and how he wants to reveal himself to us. So we want to see him. We want to see how he has come to dwell with his people, the Israelites. And we're going to see that throughout Exodus, but a lot in you know chapters 19 through 40 when we get to these chapters about the tabernacle and how the people were to worship him. So there's, there's so much that we're going to learn about God. Now one of the best ways to understand these stories is to look at them in context to see how, what is the big picture and how Exodus fits into God's story. And our uh, leaders got together with um, Dr. Jared Compton, who is a professor, one of our newer professors at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary. And some of you met Sharice as she taught through our psalm study uh, with me. And Jared said this. He said, Exodus is at the center of God's story. Exodus is to the Old Testament what the gospel is to the new. And so Exodus is a key book for us to study. What comes before Exodus? 
Genesis, okay, and what comes after Genesis? Can you want, should we say the first five together? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, what are those five books called? The Pentateuch or the Torah, right. So those are also known as the Book of Moses. So that's the way Jesus referred to it, was the Book of Moses. It's a part of a literary whole. Moses is the author. It's a, Exodus, so, is a continuation of what happens in Genesis, and we can see this in the very first words of Exodus, where it says, and these are the names, okay, of those that had come in. Now, our study of Exodus is going to be what I hope, these are my, my hopes for our study of Exodus, that number one, it will be biblical. We want to learn what does the Bible really say, and how was it meant to be understood by the original audience? Who was the original audience? But ultimately, who wrote Exodus? The Holy Spirit, right. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the Son of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We also want our study to be historical. Where does the study of Exodus fit into ancient history? Is there any real evidence? What does the archaeology, you know, prove? Did the Exodus really happen? Was Moses real? History is important. And why is it important for us to know whether it's true or not? Because God is a God of truth. My experience going away to college as a believer, going to a small Christian college, I signed up for a Bible class. It was one of the requirements, and when I went in, one of the first weeks, what I heard was, well, you know the Bible is full of legends and myths, and you know, Exodus, it didn't really happen. You know, the Bible says Red Sea, but really it was the Reed Sea. It was just a marshy area. There was no miracles, just it, it didn't really happen. It was just no big deal. Yeah, so to plant doubt in our minds, because what happens when you don't believe that the exodus really happened? What's the domino effect? Yeah, you begin to doubt whether the other things happen. You know, the other historical figures. You know, is Jesus real? Did he really die on the cross? You know, the Bible says he rose from the dead. Is that true? It's a domino effect. And I've seen this in the lives of young people who have gone off to college who have said, no, I'm, I, I'm not sure that that really happened. And then they begin this kind of slide, and it's very sad. So what I want you to know is that there is some solid archaeological evidence even to back up the fact that the, that the exodus did happen, it was real, and it's astounding to realize that it happened maybe in a time period that scholars didn't know, you know, that they're trying to reconcile all this. And so what we're gonna do, I'll just introduce this briefly, is um, there's a series of films um, called Patterns of Evidence. The first one, huh, some of you have seen them? Oh, good. Would you agree that they're, they're so bolstering to your faith? One is called The Exodus. One is called The Moses Controversy. And then there are two on the Red Sea. There's the Red Sea One and the Red Sea Two. Now, I'm so excited for those. Those of you that seen, have seen them will know, you know how encouraging they are. But I want you to study this first. Okay, so that's why we're doing a deep dive into the text. So you grapple with what God's word says first, and then in January, we're gonna gather, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a number of people, if you have a copy of the film, let me know afterwards, okay? Because I think we're, we're gathering enough copies that we're gonna have movie nights in homes with popcorn and just really, you know, be encouraged by the truths of God's word. So anyway, that, that's my little commercial, okay? <laughs> the next thing that we're, we, our hope is that we study this, uh, this study is gonna be theological. And what that means is, what can we learn about God? and his character. We want to know about the Lord in our study. So read with open hearts, open eyes. God could have rescued his people in a thousand different ways, but he chose to do it 
the way we're going to learn about in Exodus. And he did it intentionally for his glory and to reveal something to us about him. And so we want to keep our eyes open to that, okay? And not worry, you know, about some of the, you know, other things that maybe we could apply from it, but we want to learn about the Lord. We also want to study this, this is a big word, Christological. What this means is it's a big word. We want to see how Exodus points to Jesus. Okay, so we want to see ways that there's a shadow or a pointing ahead to the cross. And we're going to see this all over Exodus. And then the last thing is practical. Okay, so that is how can we apply Exodus to our daily walk with Jesus. So the first question we're going to ask, though, is how did God's people end up in Egypt? Because Exodus starts, they're in Egypt. So if you don't know a lot about Bible history, what I want to do is I want to just walk through. It'll be a review. I want to just mention that back in the winter, Amy Catterson helped us do a seminar called the Kingdom Seminar. And some of you were at that, right? Cheryl, I know you were there. And it was very helpful to get a big picture of redemptive history. So we have that. It's up on YouTube. We can send you a link this week in our email. So if you want to to watch that or listen to it, you can. All right, so we're going to start in Genesis. So open up your Bibles to Genesis 1. And I I want you to call out things that you remember from what happened in Genesis 1. I have the I have the big thing listed here on the slide, but what happened in Genesis 1 and 2? Creation. And who created the world? God created the world. He did it in how many days? 6 days and what did he do on the 7th day? He rested, right. Now, what happened in Genesis 3? The fall, right? And what happened? You know, the the serpent came and deceived Eve, and you said, "Did God really say?" Which is exactly what that professor at my, in my college class did. Did did that really happen? Did God really say that? You know, so that uh, planting a doubt there. Also, we see though in chapter three, we see the first good news. Look at verse fifteen. You see that Genesis three fifteen. God said to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the woman's offspring? Jesus. And where did Jesus come from in the line tracing back? You know, we could look at the genealogy in Matthew, right? Or Luke. He goes all the way back through. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely he goes all the way back to Eve. Yeah, but, you know, do you remember uh, the promises that were made? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that right through him, all nations would be blessed, right? So that, so we're going to see that connection as well. Now, the other thing that happens is, and oh, here, I want to, before I read that verse, how many of you have seen this book or heard about it? It's called The Biggest Story. And my gran- I got this for my grandkids, and then I realized what a great resource it was for me. <laughs> because I've read this over and over and over again to my grandkids, and it's just lovely. The, the illustrations are, are amazing. They're, they're beautiful, and they help kids understand the whole story of redemption from the beginning in the, in the garden to Revelation. And so I would, I would just highly recommend this. And he has a way of saying things Uh, in a condensed way and in a way that just helps you remember. And so I am going to quote from this book a couple of times. Yeah. This is Kevin DeYoung. Mm -hmm. Kevin DeYoung. D-E-Y-O-U-N-G. Kevin DeYoung. So on this page, this is what he says. He says, God promised that the evil serpent, the devil, would always be at war with Eve and her children. Now that doesn't sound like a very nice promise that good guys and bad guys would fight all the time? Who wants to be in a war that never ends? But here's where the good part of the promise comes in. God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake. Nobody knew when or how, but she would have a child to put things right. So that's what we saw in Genesis 3.15. 
And then a few verses later in verse 21, what do we see happening? Adam and Eve are guilty, aren't they? They feel ashamed and they try to cover themselves, right? But with fig leaves, but that wouldn't do. And so what does God do? He, he kills an animal and he covers them with this animal skin. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. And by the way, when we get to Exodus, there's gonna be a plague that might remind you of this. So keep in mind that this is all kind of one story, right? One author, and so there's, there's, there's gonna be themes that you're gonna find. Now Kevin DeYoung goes on in his book and he says, sadly, things got a lot worse before they got any better. And so then we go on to Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 4? Cain and Abel, and we have the first murder, right? Things have gotten a lot worse already. Chapter five through 11, we have detailed in there, things got so bad, right, that God says, I'm gonna send a flood. I'm gonna destroy this people. And so the flood and Noah, you know, God has, you know, he has grace toward Noah and his family. And then we have these nations that descend from Noah and then the people spread everywhere. Right, so that happens in five through 11 of Genesis. And then we get to Abraham, or Abram. He starts out as Abram, and then his name turns to Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, God called Abram, and he made him some very big promises. He said to Abram, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that is a great promise. Now Kevin DeYoung goes on in this book. He says, pretty much all the blessing that God wanted to give Adam and Eve, he promised to Abraham. And the best part, this time God was gonna do everything himself to make sure that Abraham got his blessing. You might think that God wanted to bless Abraham because he was such a swell guy, but Abraham didn't know God at all when God called him, and even after he got the call and all these promises, Abraham could still be a liar and a bit of a scaredy cat. Abraham's life had a lot of ups and downs, but he had two things going for him, the only two things, it turns out, that really matter. God's promise to bless him and Abraham's belief in God's promise. That's all Abraham had, which was a good deal because it was all he needed. Now, God went on to make some bigger promises and this is called the Abrahamic covenant. So some of you have maybe even taken a precept class where you studied all the different covenants and this is, this is the one that he made with Abraham. He said to Abraham, he said, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield your reward shall be very great. Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God goes on. This is, this is in Genesis 15 now. This is a key chapter to remember, okay, in Exodus because this is something the next thing that happens here is that as God is making the covenant, Abraham is asleep. Do you remember this story? Okay, Abraham is asleep. Look at this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, what does God say? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we see here that God 
the Lord had planned for the events that we see in Exodus that we're going to be studying, God planned it. God brought them there. He knew they would be there for 400 years. He, he told Abraham ahead of time that that would happen. Now, the next verse that I'm going to read, I just want to clue you in. This is one that R.C. Sproul said was his favorite passage in all of the Bible, in the whole Bible. He said, if I had to pick my favorite chapter, it might be Romans 8, but this is my favorite verse right here. So look at this verse. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. R.C. Sproul said that's his favorite verse. <laughs> any, any thoughts as to why that might be his favorite verse? Well, we're going to see something in Exodus. Yes. This is the presence of the Lord because Abraham is asleep and so this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch pass between the pieces. Now, when you ratify a covenant in the ancient days, what they would do is they would sacrifice animals. They would literally cut them in half. They would put one half here and one half here and then the people that were making the, the covenant, the promise with each other, they would walk between the pieces and they would say, if I fail to keep my promise, may that happen to me. May I be torn in two. May I die if I fail to keep my end of the bargain. What did Abraham do? Did he walk that gauntlet between the pieces? He, he was sleeping. But the Lord, Yahweh, walked between these pieces. It was him that made this covenant. It was a one-sided covenant where he said, I will keep my covenant. And this is, this is a, so that's why R.C. Sproul said this is his favorite passage of scripture, or this favorite, favorite verse. So let's go on here. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, right, to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God has made this incredible promise here. Now there's something else in this verse that, that we're gonna see in Exodus. When we come to God leading the people in the wilderness, how does God lead them in the wilderness? Anybody studied this before so you know? With a cloud and a fire. Do you see that? This is this is this really is pointing to God's presence, and God's presence is with the people of Israel as they leave Egypt as well. He leads them with that. All right, so Kevin DeYoung continues. He says, at times, it looked like God wasn't going to keep his promise to Abraham. For one thing, it was about 100 years before Abraham and his wife Sarah, who used to be called Sarai, had a baby named Isaac, who thankfully was always called Isaac. It does get confusing in Genesis, doesn't it? Yes, okay. We come to Isaac, and we see the story of Isaac in, in Genesis 21 through 25. And when Isaac grew up, then God told Abraham to kill him. You remember that story, right? That must have seemed, this is what Kevin DeYoung says, he says, that must have seemed like a not-so-funny way to make a great nation out of Abraham. But Abraham listened to God anyway. Here's what Isaac says. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And then you remember what happened at the last second? God provided a lamb or a ram that came out from the bushes and Abraham was able to, to use, um, use that for the sacrifice. And Kevin DeYoung put it this way. He said, it was God's way of saying, I'll take care of the rescuing. Just trust me. All right? So eventually then we know that Isaac also grew up and he got married and Isaac had twins. Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger, 
And do you remember, there's, there's some stories about that as well. Do you remember, did Esau get the blessing? Why didn't he get the blessing? <laughs> Jacob was a bit of a trickster, wasn't he? Yeah, and so Esau sold his blessing, his birthright, to Jacob, so Jacob was the one who got the blessing. And now Jacob then has 12 sons. And we read in Genesis 25, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and then the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. Now some of these names we don't hear much about, but the names that we're gonna hear more about here is, we're gonna hear a lot about Joseph, aren't we? Because Joseph is the one who shows up as the one who goes to Egypt. But there's another name that's important here too, and that is Judah. Judah is important because this time it was a fourth son who got the biggest blessing. This is the way Kevin DeYoung put it. Jacob told Judah that a lion of a leader would come from his family. Great blessings, but not so great people. Isaac was sort of a weakling, Jacob was a selfish trickster, and Judah did such dumb stuff we don't even want to talk about it. And yet, I'm really glad that he doesn't put all that in the children's book, because that would be really hard to deal with. And yet, again and again, God kept his promises all the same. He blessed the whole lot of them, despite themselves. Maybe the snake crusher would still come from the gnarled branches of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob family tree. And then he summarizes Genesis this way. He says, the end of Genesis, he says, how Abraham's family got to Egypt is a long story, but here's the short version. They went to Egypt because there was a famine in Canaan, and when they got to Egypt, Jacob's sons found their long-lost brother Joseph, who helped them get food and a place to live, even though he was there because his ten older brothers had been jealous and sold him into slavery after they almost killed him because of his fancy coat. <laughs> I told you it was a long story. Okay. So I realize that, that that's a really condensed version, and we probably want to have a little bit more information before we go into our study of Exodus. So we're gonna have a few more highlights here, and if you want to read more, it's ex, or, uh, Genesis 37 through 50 that you could read all the details, but we're gonna kind of skim over some of those. After God helped Joseph, he was, he was in Egypt, you know, because his brothers sold him there, and he had a lot of ups and downs. He ended up in prison, and you, you can read all of that. But at one point, he interprets some dreams for Pharaoh. God helps him interpret the dream. And after that, Pharaoh believed this interpretation, that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And that um, so the Pharaoh promoted him. So there was a big promotion for Joseph. He was 30 years old, and he was promoted to be second in command over all of Egypt, and he prepared then for the coming famine. And we read this in Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen. And he put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. We're going to see a drastic change when you study Exodus 1 and 2 this week. So keep in mind how high Joseph was here. All right, so after seven years of plenty, the famine hit, and then Jacob sent ten of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. He leaves the youngest back with him. Okay, do you remember Joseph and Benjamin were... Were, were, were brothers of the same mother. 
So he keeps, he keeps Benjamin back. Well, he, they go to buy grain. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they have no idea who Joseph is. So eventually, though, through much drama, Joseph does reveal himself to his brothers, in, and that happens in chapter um, 45, verse uh, 7 and 8. Joseph says to his brothers, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph recognizes God's intention here. It's beautiful to see. And then Pharaoh says, I will give you the best of all the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. So then God also makes a promise to Jacob who is still back in Canaan, right? But he's going to come as well because Yahweh tells Jacob in a dream, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. So Jacob says, okay, I, I, I'll go. And so he does. He, eventually, Jacob and all of his sons end up there in Egypt and then we have the whole family coming to live there and then Pharaoh says to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So after Jacob died, the brothers then were very afraid, right? They thought, okay, now that our dad has died, I'll bet he's going to show his true colors and he's going to get back at us. But that's not what happened. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It doesn't say God just used it for good. God, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people, many people, you're going to see that word again, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for your little ones. That's remarkable. Jacob's heart attitude of forgiveness toward his brothers to realize it was God who had ordained all of this, all of his suffering, all of his affliction, God had ordained. And we're going to see that same theme now because knowing what we know about Genesis 15, God had intended that his people would be there in Egypt now. They would not only multiply, but they're going to see 400 years of slavery, affliction there, right? Okay. The final verses of Genesis now. We have, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the way Genesis ends. So let's just recap a minute before we get into Exodus, okay? God promised to multiply Abraham's descendants and make him a great nation. And God told Abraham ahead of time that his offspring would be sojourners, they would be servants. And God promised Jacob 
that he would go with him and bring him to Egypt and bring him up again. Okay, so these are the, the big promises that have been made. And now we come to Exodus. Exodus continues a story. So the first couple verses of Exodus read like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Sons of Israel, Israel is another name for Jacob, right? Who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were, look at these words, fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph who had been second in command. Remember what we read? All right, so now I want you to discover Exodus on your own in your own personal study. I just wanted to give you a bit of orientation for the, for the book as a whole before we get started that will hopefully help you to be on the lookout for certain themes and truths, okay? So I'm not gonna get into a lot of detail, but just kind of a flyover. Now, there's a couple of main points, and one of them is we've chosen to be our theme for women's ministry this year, our Redeemer, mighty to save. And so Yahweh, the Lord our God, he is one who delivers us, he redeems us, and he also, he reveals himself. He wants us to see him, he wants us to know him. So there is a sheet at the back of your workbook in your appendix that is called What I'm Learning About the Lord God. Pull that out and keep that with you in your study, and when you learn something about the Lord, write that down so that when you come to the end of your study with Exodus, that page will be filled to overflowing with all the wonderful things that you're learning about God. All right? I can't remember what page it's on, but it's way in the back. 109, page 109. Now, we're going to go through a super, super simple outline of Exodus. And actually, I wrote one on there for you. I wrote B-E-A-E. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Before Exodus, after Exodus. That, that's one way of dividing the book of Exodus. And that's the way we're dividing it for our study. So we're, we're doing before they come out of Egypt first, chapters 1 through 15. Well, actually, they come out in chapter 13, 14, and then they rejoice in chapter 15. But then after that point, they're going to be somewhere else, right? After the Exodus, through the end of the book, they're not in Egypt anymore. So before Egypt, after Egypt is one way. I want to read Exodus 6, 6 through 8, as a way for you to see another way that we can divide up the book of Exodus. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. We're going to see this over and over. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, if you look at the first outline that I have there on your page, God is our Savior, Redeemer, and Deliverer. And we see that here when he says, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, and I will redeem you. So that's, that's point one. Then he says, I will take you to be my people. Okay? God is our companion. He's our Lord. He, he, is, he is our Lord, and we are his people. And then the third is, he says, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to dwell with you. I will be your God. So that, that's point three that I see there. Now, another way that we can outline Exodus very simply is by geography. And we can see here by geography, we can see the people start out. They're in Egypt. When they're delivered through the Red Sea, they end up in the wilderness for a few chapters where we see God will be providing for them. And they end up at Mount Sinai. So most of the second half of the book is at Mount Sinai where God reveals himself you know, to them as Yahweh, Yahweh. All right, so 
we are going to look now at some geography, since that's a big part of this book. So I learned a lot by doing this, and I just thought I would pass along some of this to you as you start, so you have a little bit more context in your mind for where the people are. Now this is a satellite view of Egypt, um, and what you see right here is the Nile River. Um, you see this flowing up here like this. And the Nile River actually, um, I mean, you can't, you can't see hundreds, of, hundreds more miles of it. It actually flows from south to north. You gotta keep that in mind, because we in the Northern Hemisphere think everything goes from north to south, right? <laughs> but it doesn't, it, it comes from highlands in Ethiopia and flows down. And you know, this river valley is very fertile. And the, the land of Egypt actually was considered, aside from these oases, basically the land of Egypt was just these areas that were on my, a couple of miles, five miles either side of the river, and then this big delta area that's up here. And so this delta, this is called the delta right up here. It's shaped like a triangle, which is the, I think that's delta is a, is a Greek uh, word, delta. And it's, that's the symbol for delta. All right, so other nations around would really envied Egypt because of this fertile uh, soil that they had because the Nile River will flood seasonally. Annually, they would have you know, you know, very rich soil that would flow out, so they, they raised lots of crops and vegetables in Egypt. The other thing I wanted you to know is in term, terms of geography is this delta region is, is known as Lower Egypt, and this down here is known as Upper Egypt, which is kind of interesting because I think, I always think of Upper as Northern, right? I, I have to turn, I have to get my, but Lower, think elevation, okay? Because this is, this is a delta. Think like New Orleans, you know, where it's, it's low, you're at sea level, and you actually have streams, you know, the Nile is broken up into many streams that come out over here in this delta area. So a little bit more about the terrain. What you have over here to the west is not inhabited because it's the Sahara Desert, right? And over here to the east, we also have wilderness. And aside from some oases, there's not a lot going on over there either. Down here in the Nile River, um, they're further down off the map, there's actually a series of waterfalls on the, on the Nile River, so it actually was a protection for the nation of Egypt because they didn't have invaders coming up from, you know, from the river either. And in the, in the ancient times, they also did not have um, invaders coming from the Mediterranean Sea up here because shipping wasn't something that was, you know, at the time of the Exodus, there wasn't a lot of shipping that was going on and military might that would be invading from the sea. So Egypt was a superpower, really, of the time. Um, the other thing I want you to notice is that, do you see how this down here is, this is the Red Sea? And the Red Sea has, it's kind of like a Y here. Do you see that? There's one to the west and one to the east. The one on the west here, actually I'm gonna go to the next map. This is a map that you have in your workbook on page 106. If you want to pull that out, you can. But I wanted to note for you that this arm of the Red Sea over here, this is called, this is the Gulf of Suez right here toward the west, that's the Gulf of Suez. And the one over here on the east, this is called the Gulf of Aqaba. And this is gonna come into play later on in our study and when we do our movie nights, okay? Because there are a couple different theories of how and where and when the Exodus happened. Because the people of Israel, do you remember we just read in Exodus, what was the land that Pharaoh gave to the people of Israel? Where did they settle? in Goshen, and so this land of Goshen is right up here in this very fertile area, this delta. This is the land of Goshen up here, okay? Now, the other thing that I wanted to um, tell you about here is that in my study, I realized that many study Bibles, um, many Bible studies that include maps in the back, have cities that are listed in Exodus, that are named in Exodus, the scholars really don't know where they are for certain, but they put them on their map anyway based on their theory of what the route of the Exodus was. And I couldn't find a map that didn't have those places on it. So I created this map myself, and I only put places on that are, you know, that are known for certain. 
and the rest of them I listed on the right-hand side of your page. We don't know. I, I put the references in Exodus of where those places are mentioned, but we don't know for sure where they are. And what has happened in the world of academia is that a certain scholar will say, I'll just, I'll put this on here. Okay, the people lived up here in the land of Goshen somewhere, okay? So they started out here. Let's say you believe that they took a route and, and they went like this and they crossed a little swamp right here. And now they're, in, now they're in the wilderness. Well then, if there are three campsites that are named where the, where the Israelites camped on their way out of Egypt before they crossed the Red Sea, where would you put those sites? You'd have to put them up here, wouldn't you? Because this is where they camped, right? Because they camped on their way across, before they crossed the Red Sea, right? But if you thought that they came down here and they crossed here, well, then you might, or, or they went this way and they crossed here. You know, you, you'd put the sites over here, right? And if you thought they came out over, this was their route, and maybe they crossed over here at the Gulf of Aqaba, well, maybe you'd put those other campsites, you know, along here somewhere. Do you understand how, how your theory will dictate where you put the names of those sites because they don't know for certain where those sites are? And we'll talk about that more in, in January, but literally scholars are all over the place, all over the map. They're all over the map. That's what, that's, that's what is, you know, so I gave you a map that's very, very basic. So you could just study the text yourself. And you could, you know, yeah, anyway. So we're going to talk a little bit about archaeological digs. Um, because the place where the Israelites lived, this land right up here, this land of Goshen, right up in this area, um, let's see if I can, right up in this area where it says Ramses, Okay, they think it's somewhere up in this area. There's archaeological digs that are taking place there. And the ancient city is called Avaris, and the, um, the, the uh, modern uh, name is Tel El Adaba. Adaba. So that is a site that is currently being excavated, and they're find, finding some really um, astounding things there, and we'll learn more about those when we see the movies in January. But I'll, I'll just to whet your appetite, I'll tell you one of the things that they have found here. They've found kind of Syrian or Hebrew-style houses, the way that they're laid out. They've found 12 tombs. They've found 12 pillars. Hmm. 12. They found one tomb that was a pyramid, but it wasn't a king. And in this one, they found no bones. Isn't that cool? So what do you, you know, it's like, wow. Does that fit with what we find in scripture? Yeah. But some, you know, it, I'll get ahead of myself. I'll spoil the movie for you. So I don't want to spoil it for you. All right, let's keep going. Um, one of the questions that we want to ask I've mentioned this already. We're gonna, we want to learn about who is the Lord, who is Yahweh. So we want to ask that. What is his name is the question that's asked in, in Exodus 3.13. And then Pharaoh says in Exodus 5.2, he says, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? So we, this is a repeated question. Who is the Lord? And then we see over and over the Lord saying to Moses and saying to the children of Israel, he said, I am the Lord. I am doing this so that you will know that I am the Lord, so that you will know. I want you to know me. So that's a, that's a theme that we're going to see re repeated over and over. J Dr. Jason DeRoshi, um, who has moved from Bethlehem and is now down at Midwest Seminary right now, said he thinks that the central theme of Exodus is Yahweh's self-exalting, gracious redemption and relationship with his people. And he divides Exodus into two parts, redemption in, verses, or in chapters 1 through 18 and relationship in chapters 19 through 40. So I thought that would be another interesting way for you to look at, at Exodus. So the relationship would be defined by the covenant then at Sinai. We had the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about a little bit earlier. This covenant that God makes with the people of Israel is called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses is the one on the mountain receiving the covenant. 
That's where he gets the instructions, the commands, how to build the temple. God delivers his people for and to himself, for his glory, and God delivers his people that they may serve him. So he tells them how to build this tabernacle. Now, a couple of other themes is that Yahweh saves. We see this when Moses is in a basket and the Lord saves him. We see the people of Israel saved by putting the blood over the doorposts. We see them saved through the Red Sea. We're gonna see this all over the place that Yahweh saves. We also see that Yahweh is our holy God. We're gonna see this in chapter three when we see Moses encountering a burning bush, right? God is holy. We also see God leading them by this pillar of fire. And we also see, do you remember what happens when Moses comes down with the commandments from the mountain? Yeah, yeah, they're building the, the you know, they, they threw this into the fire and out came the calf, right? <laughs> but, 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 but God is holy, he is our consuming fire. Now Yahweh is also our covenant keeping and our covenant making God. As we've talked about already, Yahweh is ever present. God, he meets and he speaks with Moses. He meets Israel on the mountain. He's with them in the cloud. He's with them in the pillar of fire. He's with them in the tabernacle. In fact, at the very, very end of Exodus, you can see that what happens is kind of a bookend of the beginning of Exodus. You remember how we read the beginning verse where it says the land was filled with them because they had expanded so much? If you go to the end of Exodus and you see Exodus 40, you see that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. He came down and filled the temple. So we see that theme of the Lord being with his people and filling. And then we also see that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one true God. He wants us to know him. He is that one true God. He wants us to know. Now, a couple of other things. The author is Moses. We've already said that. The audience is the people of Israel. We don't know exactly when this was written, but we do know that Moses was writing this and preparing his people to go into the promised land. Because do you remember, was Moses allowed to go into the promised land? No. But he wanted to record for his people the faithfulness of God, his promises, his covenants, so that as they went, they would, they would remember all of this. So, so Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, all of these are written before the people went into the promised land. So the style or the genre is historical narrative. There are a few places where it's different, like in, in uh, Exodus 15, where we see a song uh, that is written to praise Yahweh. Um, a little bit about the date, um, just a little bit more. Scholars are divided on this. In fact, the ESV Study Bible says this. The date of Israel's exodus from Egypt is the primary, primary chronological problem for Exodus. The book contains few cues to solve it. Okay, so scholars basically fall in two main camps on, the, on when it was written. One camp advocates for a later date, like 1260 BC, and then others think it was an earlier date around 1446. BC. And the main biblical evidence we have for this earlier date is that according to 1 Kings 6.1, the exodus took place 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Okay, so that's the verse that a lot of scholars use in order to date the exodus at an earlier date. But this is where the movies, the patterns of evidence, dive into this, how the dates have been seen you know, by uh, academia through the years. They've always thought it was this 1260 date, and so they've been looking in layers, archeological layers, for evidence of a, a Semitic people living in Egypt at that time, and they said there's no evidence of anything at 1260, and we know what happened at 1260. But if they would open their eyes to say, could it have happened earlier, as it says in 1 Kings, is there evidence? And they're beginning to find that evidence now um, as they're looking in, in those, those layers. So we are going to tackle those hard questions in January.
Why study Exodus? This is, this is the last thing, and then we'll be, we'll be going to our groups. But number one, we want to know the Lord, okay? We want to meet him in Exodus. We want to see him. And I wanted to read for you Psalm 66, 5 and 7. If you have your Bible, you could turn there if you want. It's Psalm 66, 5 and 7. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. That's Psalm 66, 5 and 7. God wants to be known. He wants to be glorified. He wants to be magnified. He is awesome in his deeds. That is our God. And so I want you to see the awesomeness of God. Number two, we want to understand his redeeming work and to see how the Exodus is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as a saving type of Christ. On the road to Emmaus, you remember Jesus was talking with uh, some of his followers who were very disappointed. Do you remember what he said? This is in Luke 24. He started with Moses. That's the first five books, the Pentateuch. And he said, starting with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Moses... Okay, so in Exodus, in Genesis, we should see Jesus because Jesus is there. God breathed these books out, so doesn't it make sense that he would have things there that point us to know and understand Jesus and his work for us? When uh, the leaders got together to prepare and to pray for, for this um, fall, I asked uh, Dr. Jared Compton, who is a new professor at Bethlehem Co College and Seminary, to come and just get us excited about Genesis, or I mean about Exodus. And he said, God's story is more than redemption. And at first it was a little jarring, like, well, no, it's all about redemption, isn't it? But it, it's, it's more than redemption. What he meant by that is that the people of Israel were redeemed they were delivered, they were saved from their bondage in Egypt, and they were brought out, but they weren't just brought out to be left alone. God wanted a relationship with them, and he had a mission for them. Do you remember what the mission was for, for Abraham? That all the nations would be blessed, right? It's the same with us. When we are saved, when we are redeemed, and we are delivered from slavery to sin, we are not just left to say, oh, we're saved. But no, we have a mission as well. Our mission is to share that love of Jesus, to share the good news of the gospel, and to also bring glory to our awesome God. You know, our, our, our mission statement for Bethlehem is we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. That, that is our mission. God wants to see that his mission is fulfilled. His story is more than redemption. Um, the good news back in Genesis 3 that would be fulfilled in Jesus, crushing the head of the snake at the cross. And remember Isaac's question? Daddy, where's the lamb? Do you remember that? James Montgomery Boyce had a sermon years ago that asked that question. He took, he took us all the way from, you know, through most of the Bible asking that question. Where do we see the lamb? Where's the lamb? And that's, that's a question that we see answered here now in Exodus as well because just as God provided a lamb on that mountain for Abraham, he also provided a lamb for the people in Israel. They put the blood over the doorposts and look ahead do you remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming? What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God. He is that. So we see that theme throughout Scripture. And all the nations are, are going to be blessed through that Lamb, that Lamb. Jesus is that Lamb. I just want to close with verse from Revelation 5, 6 through 10. 
and between the throne and four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out all into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. And that's that's the end goal. That's the end goal. That's, that's why our sisters like Tracy and, and Lori are going out to these places so that people in every tribe and tongue and nation can know the good news of who our Lord is, our Yahweh, our Redeemer who is mighty to save. So can you tell I'm excited about Exodus? Yes. So let me just pray and then I'll just tell you a little bit more about what we're going to do. So Lord, I do thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come to know you through your word and that you want us to know you through your word. So I pray, Lord, that as each one of these women go this week to dive into Exodus, that you will give them a passion to see you, to know you, and Lord, that you would open the eyes of their hearts so that they could see and that they would know these wonderful things that are in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.